1: I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time even about KPFA Pacifica Radio. On January 23, 2015, I had a chance to sit down with Armstead Maupin, whose new novel, The Days of Anna Madrigal, the final book in the Tales of the City series, had just come out in trade paperback. A shorter version of this interview aired on KPFA in february 2015. the days of Anna Madrigal, there were rumors that this is the last tales book is the, the yeah script? they're
0: not rumors this is the last tales book
1: <laughs> <laughs> why did you
0: decide to end the series i was just ready i wanted to leave it in top form and i was aware that some of the characters had gotten so old that i was going to have to say goodbye to them anyway And I was ready to move on to something else. I'm very proud of what I've done so far and the shape of the whole thing and the way each of the novels stands on its own but also becomes part of a larger story. And I could see a way to do it with this ninth novel, and I just made up my mind that I was going to. Did that come before or after your trip to Burning Man? Well, yes, I knew it was going to be the last novel, and Burning Man informed the last novel. I realized I had all this rich material that I'd never used before and I knew I could find a way to fold it into the story, especially since Anna Madrigal, the, the central figure who's the 93-year-old transgender woman, wants to go to Winnemucca in the desert there, not far from Burning Man, to confront a mystery in her own past. And so I built two separate storylines involving some of the former residents of 28, Barbie Lane, and Anna, in typical Tales of the City fashion, they they collide.
1: Colliding and Dickensian coincidence is a big part of all of the books. I yes, yes. We almost yes. expect it. We hope for it. Yeah,
0: well, I think it's kind of as close as I get to a religion, I think. It's just the belief that uh, things do happen. There are patterns in life that we don't see at first but are actually there and make it much more interesting. Let me ask you about those patterns How much of that is planned and how
1: much of it is serendipitous where you finally go, aha, I see that connection?
0: Yeah, some of it's planned and some of it is just as you suggest. It surprises me when I'm writing and I get very excited about it and realize that I can make that loop in a way. I talk to a lot of writers about the way the characters write themselves
1: or are you in full control, and it seems that when you've got characters that you know so well that I guess on some level they're almost as real as real people. How much of it do you feel is Armstead Maupin
0: consciously, and how much is, is it the characters, and how does that work for you? Some of it comes from the characters. I mean, it, obviously there is a difference because when I introduced new characters, in the last two couple of books I introduced a young Mormon character. There's a trans man, Jake Greenleaf, who's in these stories, There are some people in Anna's past back from 1936 that I've never written about at all. Those are the ones that make me most nervous when I'm creating them because I want to make sure that I find a voice for them that I believe and that can talk back to me eventually. The longer I do it, the easier it is for them to talk back. Well, when you say talk back, what do you mean? Just the thing you suggest. I I can't say that they, it writes itself because it's all tough for me. I don't write in some sort of a, you know, blissful trance. I hammer it out. But sometimes when I know them well enough, it's a little easier to let their voice take over. If Ben says something to Michael,
1: Ben mm-hmm. is Michael's partner, mm-hmm. husband, and Michael has to react, it's going to come out because you know Michael really well. I yeah. Would
0: guess. In these novels, in these more recent novels, Michael is more me than ever. So, for instance, when when Michael is getting grumpy about going to Burning Man because he doesn't want to deal with the dust and the heat and the the noise, that can come right straight out of conversations that I've had with my husband Chris, and it does, and I can find the humor in it and often see the absurdity in my own position if I'm uh, mining it for humor. Does that mean that you sometimes have to separate Ben and Chris? Well, yes, I do. And I always have to point out to people that everything they do, we don't do. not do Their voices in a way. It's not the same thing as as real life in any way. Armstead Maupin, and I want to talk for a second about Marianne and Autumn,
1: the previous book. In a sense, it's the last Tales of the City book, because the other one are the characters, but they're mostly not in the city. They're doing other things. Marianne and Autumn, deals with a mystery that gets solved that relates back to the earlier books. Mm. That particular mystery, which involves someone falling off a cliff, at what point did you
0: realize that there's more to that story? You can actually find, I often tell people this, if they go back to the early pages of Sureview, which was written in 1989, the seed was planted then for the mystery that's revealed in Marianne and Autumn some 20 years later. I actually put something there knowing that one day I might come back and, and say this and do it, and I did. It was kind of a gun in a handbag. Yes, it was. But there was a point where you abandoned the series entirely. Are there other guns then? I don't think so. Not that I can recall. That novel, Sure of You, I actually did think I was the last one I'd written, but I, I suppose some part of me knew that I might come back one day or could come back, and it wouldn't hurt to put it in because nobody would notice it until a later time. At what point did you realize hey now I could go back to it? Was it right after you finished Michael Tolliver? Well, Michael Tolliver was the return to Tales of the City. They're all tales. all nine of them are Tales right. of the City novels. Michael Tolliver was in first person. That partially had to do with the fact that I wanted to put a gay man front and center. Specifically a gay man who had survived AIDS and Uh, I had some inspiration from Christopher Isherwood's A Single Man where he was writing about a middle-aged gay man uh, who'd lost his partner. It was a new experiment for me, and I tried it and uh, eventually decided that I had greater strength writing from a multi-character point of view. And I came back in Marianne and Autumn and in *Anna Magical* to the old format. So when you realized you were coming back
1: to the old format, you were looking around and going, hey, what's there?
0: Well, you have to, yeah. These last three novels, a lot of people don't know about them. The last three novels in the Tales of the City series are uh, sometimes a discovery to people because they think of me as having ended it back in 1989, understandably, because I did. And they're not aware that I pick up the story again. I knew that I wanted one to be about Michael. I thought it was important to go back to Mary Ann. She needed redemption. She was really kind of hated by a lot of readers when I ended the Uh, or thought I ended the series back in 89. And then, of course, Anna uh, has always been the kind of spiritual center of the story, and uh, it only made sense that she'd be the the centerpiece of the last novel.
1: At what point did you realize you were going to go back to her days as Andy? Was that always just
0: central Mm -hmm. when you were thinking about these books? It was from fairly early on. I thought it would be interesting to go back. There had been passing references to her her childhood in the brothel in Winnemucca, especially the woman Margaret. Anna discovers when she first meets Edgar Halcyon, her great romance, on a park bench in Washington Square, they discover they have Margaret in common, that he'd actually gone to the to the brothel and Margaret had been uh, the, the woman he'd seen. And I thought it would be interesting to figure out who Margaret was and what her role was in andy's life i had already established his mother mother mucka as a quite a character but a very grumpy shut down old woman and i thought he had to have survived with someone else there must have been love coming from somewhere else in that brothel and it was margaret the woman down the hallway so i developed her as a character back in 1936
1: what this says to me including what comes back to us in Marianne and what comes back to us in Days of Anna Madrigal is that there's an intricacy in the earlier books that you're really, really familiar with. I mean, I can't imagine
0: remembering all of this stuff. Did you go back and reread it? Sometimes, if there was a particular area that I was fuzzy on, I would. I find it hard to reread myself because I tend to think that my best writing is my most recent writing. But yes, in some cases I did, in, in those cases of the, the references to Winnemucca, for instance, to see what I had said before. Did you do research on what it was like
1: living in Winnemucca at that yes, time? Yes,
0: I did. The Internet was tremendously helpful in that regard. I could actually find out what the drugstore was in Winnemucca in 1936, which led me to a story I found about the Rexall train, which was a big streamlined uh, train that the, that the Rexall company sent through all of the the states as a kind of promotional device. It was air-conditioned and, and very chromey and deco, and uh, and people would go and look at Rexall products on the train. It would stop in the station for half a day, and everybody would go on, and it was a giant promotional device, and the head of Rexall had a, his own private train car, and I found a way to use this in the days of Animadrigal. The same was true of uh, brothels in the 1930s. I could actually Google uh, whorehouse menu from that time and find out what delights were offered for sale at the time and found some really funny stuff about that. Was that where you found out about, uh, I don't want to go into detail, Lysol? I was trying to create a kind of Proustian sense memory for Mrs. Madrigal. She has a copy of Richard Halliburton's Book of Marvels in the present day, and she smells it and it smells of lysol and rosewater which was for her the those were the smells of the of the blue moon lodge and so i thought well i better find out if lysol was around in 1936 not only was it around but it was actually used by women as a spermicide shocking to think about and so i worked that in as a not only a bit of color but eventually a very important plot device on which everything pivots
1: which, again, is one of those serendipitous moments, probably was an aha. Yeah, yeah, I was very excited about it. Armstead and Halliburton's
0: Book of Marvels, how did you know about that? I had that very book when I was a child. It was old, and it belonged to my uncle, and I still have it around the house somewhere. In fact, I was sitting, reading it, looking at it one evening, and when, when my husband, Chris, had a, his new iPad and was reading off of it, and I was doing the grumpy old person thing about E-books and saying, <laughs> look, a real book has a good smell to it. You can hold it in your hands and feel its history. And, and so I, I used it.
1: At what point did you decide you were going to use it? I mean, was it always there? Does it
0: pop up in earlier books? No, it doesn't. I've been reading recently about Halliburton. He's a fascinating guy. He was a gay man, for one thing, who traveled all over the world in various, at one point, in a Chinese junk. Uh, in fact, the one that killed him. He and his partner were lost in a typhoon on their way to the World's Fair at Treasure Island, 1939. That's mentioned in there, too. Another 1930s detail. But I'd always, I'd always found him to be a very romantic figure when I was a kid. I thought this would be the coolest thing in the world to be this guy, that, this big strapping blonde guy that rides camels and goes to monasteries and uh, sees the world. Well, I think uh, Anna Madrigal has him beat, whatever. Well, <laughs> she's counting on him coming to the World's Fair. It's a kind of a big deal for her. Uh, but, of course, he never make. They were lost in a typhoon at sea. The story that takes place
1: in 36 between Andy, who becomes Anna, and a guy named Lasco,
0: is that based on any real story? No, that's pure imagination. I know that there are a lot of Basques in that part of the world in the in the Nevada desert. And I thought it would be interesting to have a Basque character, and I, I was looking for a romantic, a teenage romantic interest for Anna, at least a, a romantic fixation. And uh, I kind of created him out of whole cloth, as well as his sisters, who have very ugly, long names with Z's and X's in them, as some Basque children did in those days. The scenes that take place in
1: Burning Man. What year did you go?
0: Oh, let's see. It was a year before last and a year before that. 12 and 13, I guess. And this was written after 12, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: The adventures of Michael at Burning Man relate pretty closely to what you
0: experienced then? Sort of. Not entirely. Not the specific sexual adventures necessarily, but things similar. Some of the th- things that I loved I put into the book. El Polpo Mecanico, the the big octopus, fire-breathing, steampunk octopus just made me giggle every time I saw it. And certainly the temple, the beautiful temple that year, uh, we're all
1: part of it. You're listening to an interview with Armstead Maupin, whose latest novel, The Days of Anna Madrigal, just came out in trade paperback. I'm Richard Walensky on Bookwaves. I interviewed you, I think, in 2008 or so, so mm-hmm. this is more recent. 2011, there was a uh, marvelous musical of Tales of the City at ACT. What happened with it? Is it going to go anywhere? Is anybody
0: There have been rumblings it? recently from the creative team about wanting to have another crack at it. We knew what needed to be done by the time the sh- that summer run was over, and we just didn't get a chance to do it. It was hugely successful at ACT. It was the, most, the biggest moneymaker they've had in the 40-year history of the theater. And it was extended three times, and people liked it; seemed to like it very much. But it was problematic; it had some flaws that we, the creative team, could all see. But uh, unfortunately, everybody, our director and our librettist, all went off to do other things, and those things have a way of uh, evaporating if you don't keep the heat on. Jeff Witty, our librettist, contacted me recently and said, "I refuse to believe this is not going to have a life beyond San Francisco." And uh, will you? work with me on getting it right. He was hesitant to change it without the author's permission. I think maybe some of the things that were wrong with it had to do with the fact that they were so reverent to the original material that there was a lot packed into it and it needed to be a little leaner and meaner. That was my thought. I was enjoying it and I loved it, but I kept thinking
1: there are too many characters, there's too much going on, but there doesn't seem to be a way to eliminate any part of that without mm. the entire structure falling apart.
0: Yeah, well, that's why it has to has to be rebuilt in some ways. A lot of people feel, you know, the creative team felt, and I do too, that it would make sense to make it more Anna-centric, to let the diva rule. The opening number is hers, and she announces the apartment house, and that's how we meet the characters, and we could get off and running a lot faster. And it seems a kind of obvious thing to say now, but I don't think a child molester actually works in the third act of a musical. (laughs) But again, you know, it's such a central part of the story,
1: Mary Ann's Mm. story. Well, we have to find another crisis for her. I guess part of the issue is that in some respects, because, you know, you've said in the past on some level, you were Mary Ann coming to the city, Mm. that she is the central character of that book. So what you're talking about is moving
0: the central character away from Marianne mm-hmm. to Anna. It wouldn't be giving Marianne that much less to do, but it would just shift the focus to the house and the landlady and uh, I think solve a lot of our problems.
1: Armstead and the TV shows, there was a PBS miniseries mm-hmm. and then two Showtime miniseries. They put Laura Linney on the map, but there were several other people in there who were very, very good. Billy Campbell. In particular. Billy was wonderful. Has there been any interest now that we're talking long form television?
0: Yes, there has been. Nothing I can talk about yet. There's been some discussion about starting the whole thing over, basically, and going through all, all nine books, because it's all there. Why wouldn't I hope that happens? I would be very excited if that happened.
1: You also wrote a preface to a book called Hollywood, a portrait book by
0: Don Bacardi, are you mm. good
1: friends with Christopher Isherwood and Don?
0: Very, very good friends. I try to get to see him in L.A. or or he came to visit us uh, on one occasion in in Santa Fe when we were living there. We were very close. I was a young man when I met Isherwood, and he was a kind of grandfather or mentor figure. And I had the thrill of my life last year when I read his his last diary and found the page where he was reading Tales of the City and. Wow, And loving it and talking about how much Wiston would have enjoyed it, meaning Auden. <laughs> it was like, you know, this amazing connection to literary history that made me so happy. Uh, but Don, I've known, of course, since that time. So for 35 years, we're 10 years apart in age. And I find him hugely inspirational. Inspirational is the wrong word because I can't even hope to do what he does, which is to work every day and apply himself to his his painting in a way that's extremely impressive. Is there a little bit of Don Bacardi in Anna Magical, you think? Well, that's funny. No, I don't think that was intentional, although I think there are similarities when you mention it. I mean, he can be very sort of uh, uh, sharp-tongued, witty old lady sometimes. <laughs> he did a portraits. He was commissioned by uh, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie to do a portrait of Angelina during one of her pregnancies. And they flew him to Paris and to Namibia, and he sat there and painted the the nude Angelina Jolie. Uh, and he and he, <laughs> I'll try to do my Don impression. He's, he he sounds very much like Christopher Isherwood used to sound. Uh, he acknowledges this even back then. I would call the house, and I would get one of them, and have to guess as to which one I had gotten, but. He said, "Oh, it, it was it was very very annoying. This uh, she, uh, she was perfect. She was covered in tattoos, every square inch of her, even the pubis. And uh, and when when it was over, Brad wanted to be posed with her too. So he got naked, and there were these two frisky young lovers who would not keep their hands off each other. And it was most most annoying." <laughs> And I said, Don, do you realize how many people would love to see Brad and Angelina being frisky with each other naked? <laughs> the, the picture is everything to him, and he wants you to sit still. I'm very good at doing that, and I said so in that introduction to the Hollywood book. I like it. I like putting myself in his hands and being very still. Tom Ford, who wrote another one of the pieces in that book, said quite the opposite, that he hated it, that he was a control freak and a director, and he couldn't stand to just sit still and let Don draw him. Armstead Maupin, there was a bit of a, I don't want to call it a
1: scandal, because it wasn't really a scandal, because you could do what you want. But when you moved to Santa Fe and abandoned San Francisco. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> That's the way it was interpreted. I think everybody has that moment where they think, am I really in the right place for the rest of my life? Is there someplace else I'd like to try out? And we had that urge, Christopher and I, about uh, Santa Fe. We'd, we spent a f- couple of really pleasant uh, autumns there and realized that the weather agreed with us tremendously. The real estate was ridiculously cheap, still is, relatively speaking. We could buy 15 acres and a little adobe house out at the end of a dirt road, and we did it. And uh, I don't regret it one bit. We came to miss, to realize how much we miss San Francisco and city life in general, the sort of village life of a city. We had a bit of that in Santa Fe, but mostly just the pleasure of being out by ourselves in the middle of nowhere. But as far as being able to leave your house and walk down the street and have life happen and bump into people you know, we missed that aspect of San Francisco. So we came back. And now you're in the Castro. We're in the Castro. The only reason we could even afford our little flat, which... uh, is uh, <laughs> I joked the other day about the fact that when Mary Ann moved to San Francisco, she said she wanted a an apartment uh, with a view, a deck, and a fireplace for under $175. Well, I don't have any of those things now, just a little Edwardian flat, but it's two blocks from the action. I can walk everywhere. I can go to the Walgreens at midnight if I want to, if we forget something. <clears throat> and we can pay for it in part because we rent out to visitors the ranch in Santa Fe. For, you know, people want to come there for a week and have their, have their Southwestern experience. And so we're doing very well on that. That sounds really great because I know that the
1: book business itself, it's getting harder and harder to make it's a living. It
0: really is. I've had to be quite inventive. We bought books wholesale from my publisher and sold them at the Castro Street Fair, autographed of course. And I signed for nine straight hours, really a lot of fun and we made some money. And I do public speaking engagements now where people pay to come hear me, much the way that uh, I might say that Dickens and Twain did in their old age when they needed some extra cash. Writers tend to to move towards the stage at the end, I think. It's not easy. The sales were down dramatically over the last, I don't know, seven or eight years. I can't blame it on the e-book because I think e-books actually help authors, and I think e-books actually sell hard books, in a way, because as long as you can keep them interested in reading, they're going to want to own something they can hold in their hands that's permanent. I think there are too many distractions that we can all sit and watch YouTube all day long or, or any number of, I do, I watch a lot of films on television and uh, that cuts into reading time and we forget what a singular thrill it is to read a good story. You forget how centering it is. It calms you. It brings you into yourself in a way that's not like any other artistic experience. It's just you and the printed word and what your mind is doing with it. I was talking with a
1: friend uh, yesterday. We were talking about our impressions of these books because he's of an age, he's in his 40s. He's of an age where Tales of the City, the TV show changed his life. I mean, then he read the books. Mm. I remarked that one of the elements of Days of Animadrigal is by setting it in Burning Man, you eliminate electronic devices.
0: They yes, can't talk to each other. That's right. I can take it back to the old world. That's one of the thrills of Burning Man, really. You have to go out and see people and have life happen to you. Uh, and you, you can't sit there constantly, uh, constantly texting does it make it harder, you think, to write
1: a novel these days, given the fact that we're never out of touch with each other
0: because we've always got the cell phones? I think it does complicate things. It has for me. I mean, I you know, because it really requires you to sit down and focus. And, and a novel takes a year for me. That means that you have to just think about this and what you're delivering to people. Carl Sonlein, who interviewed me at the library this year, we were talking about this very thing, and he said, you know, forget about the Facebook post, save it for the memoir, because it's too easy to sit down and write three snappy sentences and send them out to the world and get all sorts of artificial praise, uh, and much harder to focus on an overall work. Well, I was also
1: thinking that one of the things that's now permanently lost is we can't have a novel of letters just from letters. People don't write letters anymore. They write emails and they go into
0: the stratosphere. Well, yes, that's true, unless we print them out or something. I mean, I think we do communicate with each other more in the with the, with the written word precisely because of the internet. I know a number of, I won't name them, some of them are in my family, <laughs> older women, for instance, in their 60s who love ha- having sort of romantic correspondences via email, and Facebook, sometimes with high school sweethearts, people they haven't seen for years and years. They like the safety of it. You reconnect with a lot of people. That's the good side. The other side
1: is we've all become ADD.
0: Yes, I think we have.
1: Armstead Maupin, did you spend much time with Robin Williams when you were working on The Night Listener?
0: Yes, yes. I was on the set the whole time, and I've known him for like a lot of San Franciscans, since uh, the late 70s. I mean, he's, he, was, he was one of us and a dear friend for, for many, many years.
1: Did you ever see any of the depression, or was that just not part of what you saw? I
0: saw the um, effects of it. I think anybody who spent any time with him really realized how desperately he tried to keep a happy ball in the air. <laughs> and you'd be talking with him. And I had an interesting conversation with Harvey Firestein, who of course came to know and love Robin when they were working on the birdcage together. And Harvey and I had lunch not long after Robin died. And we both shared with each other the fact that we both felt this terrible responsibility to keep feeding material to Robin whenever we were in his presence. Um, and I can do that very codependently. I can set up a situation for him that I know, well, he can do 15 minutes on this, and then there won't be that terrible moment of dead air when he's feeling like he has to grab for something, it was a protection from intimacy. That humor it kept him from having to get too real with you. With you, I interviewed him on stage at the Castro Theater for the San Francisco Film Festival, and and I, I was able to bring some of that to actually say it in public. To say, you know, you don't like, you don't like praise. You can't take it. You have to deflect it. We talked about it a little bit, and he got a little bit serious with me, but. For the most part, he was always scrambling for that. He felt that responsibility to make everybody else happy, even if he wasn't. He went into rehab for for alcohol right after he finished shooting The Night Listener. Uh, I only know that because I read it in the papers. I did not see any evidence of it on the set. He was completely professional, kind beyond imagination. If there were two geeky teenage girls out beyond the barricades who, hoping to get a glimpse of him, he would go over and... And say hello to them. If a grip on the set had a birthday, or if his parents were visiting, Robin did a little show right on the spot. Well, that's
1: what I've heard. I've heard he was a great guy. Absolutely, everybody. A great loved guy,
0: him. and 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 it wouldn't have helped to know how much love poured out afterwards, because I think depression, and possibly, I mean, we're all just theorizing here, but the knowledge of the Parkinsons, and what would be, have been a certain deterioration to follow must have just made it un- too unbearable for him. Armstead Maupin, a
1: couple of other questions about Tales of the City. Mm-hmm. Barbary Lane is Macondry Lane, sort of? Sort of. Uh, is Macondry Lane now the rich people like Barbary Lane is in the books? You have, to be, you have to have a fair amount of money to live there, yeah. It's high-end real estate. Well, now that you've moved back to San Francisco, what do you see the city becoming?
0: Well, it's sad in some ways because artists are being driven out, and they're the people who made it so interesting and bohemian and uh, colorful in the first place. I think the city is uh, better looking than it's been in a long time in terms of uh, the physical aspects of it. The, the development of uh, that whole Crissy Field waterfront and the Ferry Building—none of that was there back in right. the '70s. So it's as magnificent looking as ever, but. It doesn't have the diversity of population that it used to have. And the neighborhoods are, you know, going to the Castro, it's not what it was. Mm -hmm. No, but it's still a neighborhood, and I love it for that reason. And we still have them. I was at the Bookshop Bookshop West Portal, and the number of people in that store that said, oh, I saw it in the window when I walked by. This is my neighborhood. I love this book. This is my neighborhood bookshop. We still have neighborhoods in San Francisco. Yeah, most of them are dominated by Starbucks. I'm guilty of going in that place. I love Starbucks. But I think the certain amount of change just has to be embraced and we have to move on. What I miss the most is, you know, and, and I know it was
1: never a great paper, but the Chronicle kind of held things together, particularly back in the days when you were writing for it. And then it's sort of it's as if we don't really
0: have a paper here anymore. Well, we don't read papers anymore. I was I was sitting in the lobby here reading the Trib and which is just a tiny, tiny little thing like the Chronicle, and thinking it doesn't have that sense of vitality anymore because we go straight to the computer for our news. I mean, I was really lucky that I came along at a time when the morning paper was still it. And uh, you could read Herb Kane, and if some of those people started reading me, you could have an audience... A large audience at one time and you just can't do that anymore. Well, what you'd have to do is start a blog
1: and try to find some way to get it viral and that's an entirely different operation. It's not somebody saying, okay, you're going to write here and people are going to read. And
0: it's not easy to do either. I mean, everybody's got a blog. So it doesn't mean you're going to get on the internet and become a huge sensation, you know. Well, it's happening in Here in radio, too,
1: we have our listeners, but younger people don't listen to the radio where they go. Yeah,
0: yeah. You know, so it's kind of similar. Actually, radio listening is a habit like reading. Britain still has a very healthy amount of radio drama. And I got great pleasure out of that as a child listening to stories on the radio because, again, the... The the brain has to work a little more than it does if you're watching some YouTube
1: video. That reminds me. Uh, I was going over some research on your life, Armstead and Your family was friends with Jesse Helms?
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was. He was kind of a mentor when I was a young man. I'm putting this in a memoir that I'm working on. No many how many times I say it. It doesn't become any less shocking when people hear it. I was a young conservative. I was trying to please a very conservative father, and I worked at it very hard. And it wasn't until I started considering my own liberation, namely coming out, that I looked at the, the, how bogus that whole political mindset was. And uh, I could see racism clearly for the first time once I accepted how homophobia worked. What's interesting about that is that here you
1: were making that transition and then you came to San Francisco and you were one of the
0: first writers to really come out and say, I'm gay. Yes, I was. I'm very proud of that. Uh, There were a few. Christopher Isherwood came out at roughly the same time I did. Uh, He was an old man, but he was our leader. The year that Tales came out, uh, Larry Kramer's Faggots came out, Andrew Holloran's Dancer from the Dance, there was a a burst. Uh, that's the year it was published. I always am kind of proud of mentioning that it was in the newspaper two years earlier than that. So I preceded those things with tales. But uh, and Anita Bryant, uh, the, the the her vicious anti gay campaign in South Florida sort of drove me and a lot of other people like me out of the closet. And I just chose to make it part of my life. And Harvey Milk came along and drove Frank Robinson out of the closet yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. Harvey, by the way. Uh, I always like to point this out so I don't seem too sullied. He was a young Republican. He was a naval officer. He had to make a journey just the way I did. And sometimes I think those of us who did that had a little more fire in our belly by the time we we were actually out. Harvey, uh, the other thing that I had in common with him was we were both kind of liberated initially by theatrical troops. I got picked up by an actor in Charleston, South Carolina, and invited to... Uh, production of the cherry orchard in atlanta and got to hang out with the cast and afterwards i would see gay straight young old male female all with their arms around each other all accepting each other it was really beautiful and harvey had the same thing with the cast of hair in in new york city where he just thought wow this is the way life should be lived at that
1: point san francisco was a small community the gay community you knew all these people and they all knew you
0: Uh, Well, yeah, it was relative. We were doing our best to know each other, let's put it that way. (laughs) I did nightly research on my my fellow gay man. But also,
1: I mean, there there was the gathering place of the Castro. Armstead Maupin, uh, here we are in uh, 2015, and both of us are getting on, which means we have to deal with something that previous generations didn't have to deal with, which is what it's like to be an older gay man. And how do you
0: function? You mean the ones that died of AIDS? You mean yeah, the,
1: well, they all didn't make it, but we did. Well, that
0: that colors the way I try to approach my own old age, thinking you're damn lucky to be here. And you think of all the people that you loved who didn't make it, and you have gotten this far, so do not complain about it. Uh, celebrate it. And, uh, I, you know, again, Isherwood was a model for me in that regard. He was a wonderful old man, and he lived. he tried to live in the moment. He was probably, when I met him, just a few years older than I am now. He lived each day as it came, and 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 tried to share what he knew with younger gay men. And I I do the same thing. And I, and I, it was tremendously gratifying. I met the uh, cast of Looking while they were here shooting that that series for HBO, Jonathan Groff and 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 Russell Tovey, and and they came to me as if I were some elder, and I was honored to well, feel that way. You know, I know that the people who put together Looking. Look at a at a series like Tales of the City, and that's their mentorship as writers. The actual cast said they watched the whole miniseries when they got to town to just get into the mood of things. We do that as as writers, no matter whether whether we're gay or not. If we're trying to capture a particular period, we're we're laying the groundwork for those who come after us. And uh, I'm really proud to have been part of that process. If there were Isherwood, was it? For me, I, could, I had to sort of read between the lines, but the Berlin stories and his life in Berlin in the 30s colored uh, how I created Tales of the City. There was an apartment house with a with an eccentric landlady and a sort of pansexual group of tenants, and that came from Isherwood.
1: Armstead Maupin, you mentioned before you're starting to work on a memoir.
0: I am, very, very slowly. <laughs> It's a little scary, but it's called logical family, which comes from an expression that Mrs. Madrigal uses where she says uh, we have our biological families and then we have our logical families, meeting the one that makes sense for us. Well, you claim—I'm going to call this a claim, not a
1: promise—that Days of Anna Madrigal is the final mm. Tales of the City.
0: Mm. However, there are open ends— in the book, there are open ends in life. I mean, there's—you <laughs> can't wrap everything up unless you drop a bomb on everybody. A friend of mine said, "My his disappointment in the book is that there isn't a group
1: hug at the end." Yeah, I was determined not to have a group hug. <laughs> That—that's what I told him. Yeah. I... Uh, do you see yourself ever going back? Not necessarily in writing a novel, but in maybe writing stories about those years between
0: 1936 with Anna or. No, not really. Not really. Because for the most part, I've really tried to pull things out of the air around me. And so to go back and do books that might have been written in between two of the Tales books, I I think it would be a self-conscious effort and it would show. You've put the characters to rest. I have. I have. Except for the musical and possibly a TV show. That would be nice. I have not put the lore to rest. I I'd like to see that in another form. You can get all of
1: Tales of the City's book because they're all, I guess, in print, right?
0: Yes. Some uh, handsome new paperback editions that when they're all done, the, the graphics on the cover will line up and form one long cityscape of San Francisco. It's really quite ingenious.
1: Armstead Maupin, whose novel The Days of Anna Madrigal and the entire Tales of the City series is available in trade paperback. The interview was recorded in Berkeley on January 23rd, 2015. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.